Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, a podcast all about living more of your life now, yet being responsible for your future. Lifestyle experimenter, wealth scientist, and financial coach Dustin Service shares life hacks, wealth tips, and interviews successful entrepreneurs on how they're thriving in happiness, purpose, and prosperity. Today on the podcast, Peter Newworth, author of Money Mountaineering, Using the Principles of Holistic Financial Wellness to thrive in a complex world. This was a great podcast in a sense that Peter is an actuary for you know many decades and has a lot of experience analyzing things from pricing life insurance to uh, analyzing the statistics on what your retirement might look like in different markets. We cover you know things like the sequence of returns if you get 10% the first year you have a portfolio versus zero and what average returns actually mean. And we unpack negative bias that people currently carry and how to weigh out and weigh through making decisions in such a interesting time right now. I selfishly asked Peter a number of questions that I'm curious about, and I've been in the business for nearly two decades. One thing in particular is whole life insurance, good or bad. And I also get into, is there any sort of investment that's better than the other, i.e. Bitcoin, gold, investments, stocks, annuities. And Peter does a great job of bringing us back to helping uh, figure out what is actually good for you. Everyone's different, and he gives a number of questions and provides a few principles in his book, again, Money Mountaineering, on how to navigate through the decumulation stage of your life. And and not only that, he also breaks down what financial decisions you can make now to help you set up for an eventual retirement or flexible work environment. So let's get on with the episode. Peter Newworth. This is a very current problem in the actuarial profession because, um, you know, I was, I was actually there, you know, at the very beginning of 401k. I, I started my career at Hewitt Associates consulting career and uh, I had just joined. And in the fall of 1981, I attended a technical training session on this new section of 401. They had actually moved the old section K to be L and they put in a new section K and, you know, the senior actuary was saying, this is going to be a fantastic new thing. And employees are going to be able to defer money tax-free and they're going to be able to accumulate money tax-free and they're going to, it's going to be a tremendous boon for retirement saving. And of course it was, and it was a fantastic thing. And it has been a fantastic thing. And the in the 40 years that it's been around, but I don't, you know, don't think anybody really anticipated what would happen once employees had accumulated, quote, enough is, all right, well, now, now that you've got enough money to retire, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live the rest of your life? How are you going to make it last? How much should you take out to make sure that you don't spend too much and end up exhausting your resources but on the same time, you don't want to die with a ton of money either. And that's the problem that the actuarial profession has been struggling with. And um, there's a lot of risks associated with uh, the decumulation phase that, that are not in the accumulation phase. Most, you know, most probably prevalent and unrecognized is the sequence of return risks. Whereas if you, if you in, the, in the early years in your retirement, if you have a few down years in the market, you really could just run out of money very quickly, even if on average your your returns are okay. So is, is there a question that people could ask themselves to try and vet out growing the money versus adjusting their spending? Because when I work with people, you'll say, hey, you know, you could spend this much money a month. And they'll say, okay, great. At, you know, and we'll project out some return sequence or, or, or Monty model. But then, uh, you know, some people will say, well, I don't want to ever adjust my savings. So then that person, like what solutions do they, then you're going to annuity and saying, well, you can not adjust, but you get less. (laughs) So how do people gauge that when they're, so I'm two years from retirement. I'm trying to figure out all this. What, what are the actuaries and actuaries, uh, you know, there's a behind the scenes of the financial industry for anyone who doesn't know that figure out insurance and projections and, and statistics, really. It's 
probabilities, correct? A lot of it's probably it's 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 balancing time, risk, and money, and um, that's that's uh, what it is. It's probably I mean that's what actuarial that's what actuarial work is. It's it's a combination of probability and statistics, finance, with the added element of time. In other words, this whole notion of present value and and what's the value today of something that's going to happen many years in the future and even that is is not an easy question and it and it depends it depends on the person i mean i you know there's a lot in and this is where i i i'm a little bit of a contrarian in 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 my field because you know there's there are actuaries who will tell you you know you should be discounting future cash flow at 6% or 5% or 7% because it's all about what you're going to earn but in the real world it's people having to make decisions between something today usually a cost today for a benefit down the road and they have to value themselves how much is that value 10 years to from now worth compared to my life and, and my money today. And I, I believe that everybody has their own way of balancing the present and the future. And, and we should honor that. And that's what it makes me a little bit of a contrarian within the actuarial field, which says no actuaries are expert in that particular. Is uh, there any camps like there, you know, different camps of people like where it's, you know, screw it. I'm, you know, I've got some clients that are, they're going to work forever and that's their play. And so they try and keep themselves healthy. Right. Uh, and then you have the other ones that are, you know, they only make 90,000 a year and they save like 60 of it. Right. <laughs> so I'm exaggerating, but you get it that they're not, they are literally limiting decisions daily. I think so is. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, in in, in our field, we, we we talk about the low discounters and the high discounters, um, because that's what it translates. You know, the high discounters say the future really doesn't matter. It's so far in the future. I'm discounting that at a very very high rate. And the low discounters are the ones who say, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna save for tomorrow because tomorrow. I'm going to want it, and I and I and I think about that, and I value that that time. But unfortunately, it's it's even more complex than that um, because different people think about different periods in the future differently. I mean, some people are focused on the next five years, and they will they will sacrifice a lot to make sure five years from now they're fine. But they really don't think about. 15, 20, 30 years from now. And there are others that are the worst. So that, that's why I say, and that's why my, you know, sort of principle number one in uh, my six principles is everybody's situation is unique. It's not just how much you have and versus how much you owe, but also how much you're going to have and might have and how much you might have to spend and are planning to spend in the future and how you feel about that, how much risk you're willing to take, how many chances you're willing to take to, to get what you want, and also how much you value today versus tomorrow, as well yeah. as you know what you're afraid of, what you desire, you know, what's really important to you. It's it's we, you know, like I said, that's why I say if you've seen one financial plan, you've seen one financial plan. Everybody's different. If uh, have you ever done any actuarial work on life insurance? Oh yeah, I mean that's um, um that's probably so, if there's one part of um, I mean I know I know retirement and pensions pretty well, but I've also spent quite a quite a lot of time with with in in the life insurance world. I I started with Connecticut General Life Insurance uh, in 1979. And in fact, I bought my first whole life policy when I was 23 or 24 years old. I mean, I didn't have I didn't have a wife, I didn't have kids, I didn't know. I think I put my sister down as a as a beneficiary. But the point was that this kind of really sharp uh, life insurance salesman was wandering around the halls of Connecticut General selling whole life insurance to actuarial students. And the reason he was successful is because 
the numbers worked. He was, you know, he was talking to people that could understand the product, understood how it worked, think were ten, tended to be low discounters who thought a lot about the future. And, um, you know, I bought the, my first policy from him in 1979. Since I've had four more policies uh, purchased, and now I've got five whole life policies worth probably a half a million dollars in, in terms of cash value. And they've been one of the best investments I've I've had, you know, earning a steady so this, guaranteed rate. Oh, I love it when we uncover stuff that I never knew uh, was going to uncover in a podcast. But uh, I currently own uh, two as well. Uh, but it is one of, in being in the life insurance business and being someone who sells life insurance and uses it as a solution, and usually we're building a plan and we call it buckets or the conveyor belts. And so we got a, a dividend portfolio and then we got a whole life and then you got refundable critical illness. And so you're building it like this plan. So it's part of something. It isn't just, hey, Pete, you know, you can save 10 grand a year. Why don't you put 10 grand in a whole life? It's, it's a lot bigger than that. But it right. is one of the most controversial topics. And to hear it from an actuary who understands the numbers. And, and for anyone listening, I know that uh, I'll, I'll do my best to really make this extra simple. A lot of the whole life has uh, short-term cash values that are very low, longer term being higher. So in a 20-year period, if you're putting in 10,000 a year, in the first 10 years, your cash value would be low relative to what you've put in. But after 10 to 20, it really starts to grow. And then after that, it grows even faster. That's right. Now, now a lot of accountants will uh, challenge it uh, based on, they could invest, they could do different things with it. So from an actuarial nuts and bolts standpoint, why, why do you have five whole lives? Well, like, and why have you continued to buy them as you got older? So you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, and this is actually probably one of the most common questions I get. And people always say, well, shouldn't, I mean, it's just so inefficient. Shouldn't you be, uh, you know, in buying term and investing the difference Buy term invest the difference. And yes, that from a very, very narrow technical standpoint, that may be more efficient, but to me, that's the difference of using a scalpel or a Swiss army knife. And to me, whole life insurance is the kind of the Swiss army knife of, of financial service, financial products. It does lots and lots of things well enough. I mean, it's a great way. It's a, it's a, it's a decent way to accumulate, um, accumulate money tax, tax free because it, it, it accumulates tax free. It's then available to borrow. Uh, the cash value. I mean, I borrowed my cash value and paid it back probably three or four times in 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 my career, and um, it provides a, a tax free death benefit. And and you know, you there's periods in your life, and and I've had periods where I've had very high insurance needs because I've you know I was raising a family and had a wife that was studying for her licensing exam in the in a different field and and so I needed a lot of life insurance and and that's why I bought those extra policies but then as I got towards the end of my career I reduced those death benefits and turned them into paid up paid up um paid up policies where I didn't have to pay premiums anymore and had a death benefit that just was high enough to qualify as life insurance, but not so high as it, you know, I was overinsured. And so then after retirement, you know, it's, um, it can be used for all kinds of things. The cash value can be turned into an annuity. You can, again, use it as a, as a uh, place where you can have tax-free emergency funds by withdrawing the cost basis. And it can even be used as a, as a substitute for a JNS, a joint survivor annuity in retirement. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could, you know, a lot of times people take a life annuity, don't take a life annuity from their, from their pension plan because they want to protect their spouse when they die. Well, if you have a paid up life insurance, 
then maybe you can just take a life annuity from your from your retirement plan and leave that life insurance as the uh, providing survivor income to your to your spouse. And so there's any oh, go all ahead. kinds of things you can do with it. Do you see any sort of uh, stress test? So if I've got, you know, again, a lot of people, listeners are successful entrepreneurs. You may have a holding company or an operating company that generates cash. They, they save money. So I've got 100000 for easy math. At the end of the year, I've paid myself a salary. We're, we're taken care of. And I'm going to, you know, I've got to deploy this, you know, maybe some real estate, maybe um, some stocks, you know, maybe some whole life. Is there a rough amount that you ever had in your head or is actually proven that's the lowest risk as a stress test, like for future cash flow to be able to fund the whole life? So where I'm getting at is like, if I've got a hundred grand, what's an appropriate amount to put into each bucket? Because, and I think I know what, I think I know what the answer is, but like, is there an, is there a number or statistically lowest risk that you should have? 33% real estate, 33% in stocks, 33% in a bank account. Is there any calculations you've done on that? Well, I, I've done I've done those calculations for myself, but the problem, and there is a number. I mean, it, it's not it's not like a math problem that has a specific answer, but it's but it is tractable in the sense that you can kind of make those judgments and 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 calculations. The problem is it's highly specific. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very, very idiosyncratic. And the answer is going to be very different for, for different people. But I mean, my general approach is, is um, you know, and I talk about in the book about this barbell strategy, and I think it's, it's principle number five, which essentially boils down to advice that my father gave me when, when I was a kid, which was, um, Hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and keep lots of irons in the fire because you never know which of the ones is going to be, you know, flame up and, and, you know, keep you warm and take care of it. <laughs> good analogy. What, so that's a good segue to the book. I think, you know, I've, I've kind of kept people at bay for now almost, uh, you know, a half hour. What, give us the, the, the introduction to your book. Uh, and and uh, a teaser of the of the story. Well, you know, let's just say that the the I you know I'm, I've sort of lived I've lived for about forty years or more than that, almost fifty years in in the world of money, and um, you know I see it as a as a as a mountain wilderness, a kind of a dangerous, um, but. It's a it's a wilderness we all have to live in. We all have to make our way through because, you know, money was an amazing, brilliant human invention. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's as as important as the wheel or fire or anything like that, but it was a it was a heck of a good idea to allow you know barbers to trade haircuts for bread and 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 you know and. But like many good ideas that humans come up with, you know, everybody kept improving it and kept tweaking it and adding whistles and bells. And now we've got an incredibly complex world with, you know, markets that look like they're unrelated, but they are and, and derivatives and, 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 you know, who knew that, um, you know, the financial markets would the stock market would crash when people stopped paying their mortgages and in, in in or the or the housing bubble burst in 2008 it's all complex it's all un, it's all interrelated it's kind of like the woods and it's like this this wilderness that you can get lost in not only that but you don't know what the weather's going to be like you don't know when the when there's going to be a forest fire or a, or a or a a mudslide or or some kind of storm so you don't know what the future is going to like. You don't know how it's going to affect, and it's pretty noisy. There's a lot of there's a lot of people running around telling you what to do. Not all of them know what they're talking about, and almost none of them have they, and none of them know you exact completely, and they all don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. So what I try to do in this book is to 
create a, a kind of a trail map, a terrain map, maybe give you some binoculars, a flashlight to see in the dark, and a few things that maybe you should keep in your backpack to um, make your way and get to where you want to go. And, and again, I, some people like to climb the highest peaks and, and be able to, you know, scan the whole thing. Some people have big families that they need to take care of, but everybody's different. So that's what this is. This book is about is, is who are you, what's your relationship to money and, and um, what, you know, I give you some ideas and tips and principles to keep in mind as you make your way. And I think, uh, and everyone could apply their own personal thing. And my personal trainer used to say, you know, are you going to complete or are you going to compete? And, you know, going into some sort of event or something. And if you're just completing it, then you can train a little different than if you're going to compete because uh, there's a lot different mindset and and edge. So I'm sure the book uh, lays that out and, uh, I, I'm I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the premise, and and especially now, you know, people, the world is filled with distractions up the wazoo, and uh, I don't know if humans, and maybe you've studied this, where as humans have evolved, we've become more hyper vigilant or more um, hungry for the data to try and figure out everything, and you can apply that analogy to umpteen different topics. But as it applies to finance, is there a balance between having too much information and being caught in the peat bog? I don't know if that's mentioned in your book, but the the bog opposed to not having enough information and getting caught without a rain jacket. Like is that is how do you you stick handle it? That's a great question, great point. And 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 it touches on a couple of things. First of all, I, I do think people are, are, are getting kind of very obsessed with, you know, evaluating all the data and trying to figure things out. Um, and I think that comes from just a real um, anxiety and un- discomfort with living with uncertainty. I mean, these these have, you know, I, I one of my, uh, well, I've collaborated with Annie Duke on this and, and Annie, Annie, um, at some point says she told me she she gets asked all the all the time when are we going to go back to normal and 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 the answer is we're never going to go back to normal because we never were normal the world has always been a very uncertain right. unpredictable place and we need to get comfortable with that with that bit of uncertainty but the other thing that's that I think you touched on well was behind what you're saying is that we really weren't evolved to um, to, eva- to 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 choose between fixed and variable rate mortgages. I mean, we were evolved to hear a rustle in the tree in the in the in the in the in the woods and think, "Is that a predator going to come and eat me?" And that's that's where our our risk aversion and that's where our risk metrics and risk calculations come about is from that long millions of years of evolution. So we're not we're not designed to, you know, calculate, process lots and lots of data to to do that. So what I suggest is that you're going to need help. You're, you're going to need help with with um, making your way through this. But the way you should get help is kind of the way you get help from a lawyer. Um, why do you hire a lawyer? You, you hire a lawyer to get you out of trouble, or maybe you hire a lawyer to find out if you're in trouble. Maybe you hire a lawyer to evaluate a transaction that you're thinking about, or maybe you hire a lawyer to help you execute a transaction. But every time you hire a lawyer, you're hiring a lawyer that has expertise in exactly what you need help with. And you know, to the extent you can, you are making sure that that lawyer is working for you. And I, I think people should do the same thing when it comes to financial advice, because not everybody knows everything. I mean, you know, you can go to a financial planner. One of the best financial planners I know is, is and I talk about in the book, is this woman, Rita Chang. And what what's terrific about her of course, I hadn't met you before, Dustin. So, oh, I, yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but Rita, 
is so good at knowing what she doesn't know. And when she, when she, when she has a client that looks like they might need help with a reverse mortgage, she sends them to an expert in that. And, and likewise, 529, she does that. Actually, she knows a lot about 529. So that she handles herself. But other things she sends, she sends you to the expert. So get the help, get expert help when you need it and make sure they're working for you. I mean, that's what I would yeah, say. And I, I think you bring up, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of time, you know, people go in, whether it's the bank or they go to financial and they get the spreadsheets and the charts and, you know, there's all this, you know, what risk tolerance are you like are you a high risk it's like well i don't know let's get back to what we're actually trying to do and the values and trying to figure out what actually we're we're doing and uh and i again i i see clients all the time where they come in asking for stocks and they leave looking at realtor.ca which in canada that's the mls or the real estate listings mm-hmm. because they, they actually, when I ask them the deep questions, they actually want to buy a place that they can share with their family because uh, both of them grew up and never had that and their parents wanted it and died. You know, so, so then they leave and they say, I say, take that money and go buy that place now instead of five years from now and then reset and kind of come back. So value-based things are, are, are greatly important. Um, can, you, can you give us another uh is there any sort of, you use the lawyer analogy and the delegate, any other specific tools in the book of your decumulation or you know, spending and retirement and the, the lowering the risk? How, is there any emotional triggers or emotional exercises that people can go through when they're thinking about retiring? Because it is their identity for a lot of people that what they did own that company, you know, for a lot of the listeners, they own companies. And so the thought of, you know, selling, and then I'm going to have a bank account that only goes like this, that is a stumper. So is there any tools or exercises that people could do before they retire that kind of is like the reps, you know, doing, you know, the, the workout beforehand so that when they actually are either forced via health or a buyout or the economy's rocking and someone like me comes in and says, Hey, you've had three years of kind of crap and you've had two really good years and you're 62. I know you wanted to retire at 65, but you could be getting premium dollar. How do people start doing the reps now to get themselves ready for retirement? Well, it's, um, I mean, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I, I guess there's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is, you know, you got to stay light on your feet you got to stay flexible and you got to stay, you know, ready to, to adapt to changing, to changing circumstances. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, thinking about the future, looking at the unpredictability of the future with some curiosity, some open-mindedness for all the things that might happen, you know, so practice imagining all the, all the scenarios that might happen from the very best to the very worst. I mean, people have a tendency to focus on what they think will happen or what they're really afraid is going to happen. And both of those are good, but you also should be thinking about the whole range. So try to imagine all the things that might happen and all the, all the ways, the ways the future might, right. Um, manifest. Like worst case to, to what, what, what if it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah. I mean, and, know. and um, the other thing is, and, and this is a technique that, that actually is is Annie Annie Dukes and that I, you know, picked up on, which is time travel. Is do some mental tri- time traveling. Just really imagine yourself twenty years from now, and just you know, I think th- there's even some kind of app on. Uh, I think Prudential had it, where okay. you could you could get a picture of yourself and then have it age twenty years, and then yeah, you. Yeah. Then you you're probably familiar with that. Oh yeah, look you look like I thought like I, did, I don't know if my dad was there at that point and it's like no that's me. Right, right. <laughs> so I think that can be helpful. I mean, it was helpful for me anyway to to kind of imagine how I'd feel and and of course you you, know, you don't no one no one knows how you're going to feel. You you don't know how you're going to feel 20 years from now. But if anybody would know, it's you. You know you don't. Yeah. 
So, so as an actuary, you know the probability and the statistics, and you've looked at numbers and stats and back test, front test, whatever test. Right now, uh, lately, and so we're 2021, uh, heading into third quarter or in or fourth quarter, and I hear people say, "Yeah, Mark's got a crash," you know, and these are common people, not deep into the, but they're they got a feeling, mm-hmm. and. You know, on the flip side, you say, well, you know, things might not be what they say on Fox News, Um, but but people, is it proven or scientifically proven that people are negative, like negative bias first? And 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 what actually like in the past history, the market has gone up and to the right over 100 years. So we've had deep troughs in there. But going forward, how do you? help people or how would you help people look at the science of the numbers that we've been in this exact spot? Maybe you know that exact number many times in the past. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, um, here's the unfortunate fact. I, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a fact, which is that markets in general are, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, investment, uh, professionals who calculate and based on you know, long history, they make some assumptions about what the distribution of future returns might be. And generally speaking, they assume you know a normal distribution because it's easier to calculate. And in a, if things are driven by normal distributions, then the past data can give you a very good understanding of what the what the future might look like but unfortunately history has shown that markets really don't follow a normal distribution they follow what's called a fat tail distribution and fat tail distributions have black swans which come out of the tail of the distribution and suddenly the world has been turned upside down and we've seen that happen a couple of times in the last 20 years and and um, it's going to happen again and how bad it is and what happens next is is really anybody's guess. So I I don't I try not to I don't and one of the things about a, a fat tail distribution is that you just don't have enough time to collect enough data to really understand what the what might what might happen or what what is expected to happen. Um, so now that being said, I think there are some things that you can see and and project at least a little bit for example i mean i think the 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 government in order to the fed in order to to stop this the um, the bleeding in the economy and 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 we had worse economic this was worse economic crash in some ways when the pandemic hit than in the depression, because the unemployment rate went from like three and three and something, three percent up to fourteen percent in a month, and that never happened even during the depression. And and the Fed printed a ton of money. They sent a lot of uh, checks out. They added immense liquidity into the system. They they bought municipal bonds so that cities could continue to make make their payments, um, and they they stopped the bleeding. But they did it at a cost. I mean, they really increased the money supply by a huge amount. And that's that's going to have an impact. And I think we're already seeing that. If the money supply went up 28% last year, then, well, why aren't prices 28% higher than they were last year? Well, because there's a lot of other factors that drive prices. But I really do believe that we are going to see some kind of inflation that's going to be problematic for a while will it be forever what makes it, who knows what makes it go back like what is is it your like your word the last thing in your calculation of time or what makes what will make it come like take the money off the take the money out of the system well there's there's lots of different ways that money can come out of the system i mean it can come out of the system through taxes i mean people don't appreciate it but you know the government creates money by, you know, running the printing presses and, and you know, basically putting things, you know, just buying stuff, you know, 
with with ledger ledger uh, entries, but they also can take money out of the system through taxes. And are they going to take enough money out of the system through taxes to bring it back in balance? Who knows? But the other way is is productivity. So if productivity is you know we have huge um, increases in productivity that that could bring it back and. But you know, I, again, I don't, um, I I don't engage in long-term projections. Uh, all I know is that there's something in the system right now, which is this huge increase in money supply that I believe, and I could be wrong too. I mean, there could be oh, all yeah. kinds of things that will change it, but I believe it's going to we're going to see some higher prices. That's why I'm Sweet. buying. That's why I'm investing in comic books right now. So. <laughs> well, I was. I was going to, you know, this, this isn't an investment podcast, but everyone always finds it interesting of where people sort of put their money. In. And I was going to ask if, if Bitcoin has uh, any sort of place on your radar or if it's more whole life insurance or, you know, if inflation is going to be there, then one would argue commodities and, and real estate. Um, yeah. Well, I, like I said, I mean, again, I, when people ask me, well, what do you recommend I do? And I said, well, first of all, I don't recommend anything. I, I will tell you what I do and I'll tell you why I do it. And if I get to know you really well, I might say, if I was in your position, I would do this and this is why. But um, but what, I, what I've been doing is I've been buying real things. I've been buying, you know, I, I'm, you know, buying old furniture, old books. I mean, stuff that's, that's real because, yeah. um, and also that's what I value. So. So it works for me. Yeah, and I, that's that's a huge uh, gold, Bitcoin, real stuff, real estate. Oh. Uh, yeah, you probably want so Bitcoin. You know, oh, I, no, I'm, I wasn't pressuring you for. It. I just what people value uh, yeah. is always the debate of you know gold. I I do have a client where I took her to a gold uh, specific broker, you know, and she she had all these stacks of gold, and so she has these one ounce mint. They call them quad nines. And so you stack of those on the table and it's $20,000. <laughs> I'm literally looking at the gold. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at him with the stack of cash uh-huh. and I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, this is so bizarre that people, there's like, he obviously had a buyer for that. So, so some, and then she gets her buddy and she, you know, it was, it was long lost in her safe for years and years. And so People do value it as much as people go, it's just a number. It's just, what would you do with gold? Like, well, it's something. And uh, that I find fascinating. And, and well, Bitcoin's the same thing because it's- Yeah. I mean, I, I I do have a few gold coins and a few, few of those. Um, but, you know, money in and of itself, I, don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, again, this is my own personal bias. I'm not sure money just as a as a thing has has a lot of value. Um, it's really just it's a medium of exchange as far as I'm concerned. But um, the Bitcoin is very interesting. I had a and I, and I talk about it in the book. I have a friend who is a computer science guy. He's actually artificial intelligence, and he came to me back when Bitcoin was selling for eight. And and um, he said, you know, there's this new there's this new thing in the in the world of money that's going to revolutionize the the world of money. And I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. And then he starts telling me about the Byzantine generals problem and this very complicated computer science. He's talking about blockchain technology and and how the nonces and registers and and I'm saying, but 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 what does this have to do with money? He said, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then, <laughs> and then he's saying how this blockchain uh, technology enables the creation of this currency that has a fixed supply and it cures all the problems. And, and he said, I, you know, I said, he said, I bought a hundred of these coins and I'm not going to sell them until they get to a hundred thousand each. And I think they're worth a million, but I'll wait till they get to a hundred thousand. And um, well, he, he, he was right. And he, the, the truth is he started selling them when they got to about, I don't know, 10 or 20,000. He still has a few, yeah. but, but my problem with that was okay. But so now you're going to sell them, but you're going to sell them for dollars. But you just said that they're, they're worth, you know, something because the dollars are not worth, well, 
what are you going to do with all those dollars? And, and they're going to get worse. So it's a it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing that I, mm-hmm. I, I still have trouble with when it comes to Bitcoin. It's like buying a stock and you're saying, oh, I'm going to just trade this. And then you go the wrong way. And uh, now you're buying holes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So you just change your status. Just move the bean, different cup. It'll be fine. Right. So thank you. I, I was uh, I just didn't know if you had any sort of stats and, and principles on uh, and sort of the numbers and and uh, so in in the actuarial world, uh, I'm going to make you come back to the book in a minute. But in the actuarial world, what is the most fascinating thing that you've seen in your 40 years? The most fascinating thing I've seen in my 40 years in in the actuarial world of numbers that you were either the most surprised by or you know, that, that was a really an aha moment where you're like, ha, huh, now I figured that out. And, it, you know, it had been a problem that you hadn't figured out in years and years based wow. on the numbers. That's a great question. I mean, I, there, there was a lot of, um, there, there were a lot of things that, that surprised me. Um, one of the things that, that really surprised me, and fortunately I, I kind of got in on it early in the, in the sense of trying to help help my clients get around it was the extraordinary increase in uh, the cost of medical care that, that Mm. we've, we've experienced in, in my time. I I can remember back in the nineties sitting with my, my mentor who's a, an old Scottish actuary who'd seen, seen a lot. And we were, and, and I was explaining to him how there was this new accounting for, um, medical, uh, retiree medical benefits and how that was going to be a a big deal for, um, for companies. Um, because, you know, we have to do an actuarial, a new kind of actuarial valuation of, of these future medical, medical expenses, which was a, which is a very, very interesting, was a very, very interesting exercise. Um, and he says, um, well, they can't keep going up like this for too long because, and then he did some back of the envelope calculations said the, um, then medical care will become, you know, I don't know, 30% or something of part of the economy. And that's ridiculous because right now medical care is only, I don't know, three, 4% of the, of the, of the economy. And, um, but, you know, we also looked and said, well, at one point, agriculture was 60% of the economy, and now it's, you know, something. And it was, for me, that has been just fascinating to, and, and you know, in some ways, tragic to watch how amazingly expensive the cost of keeping ourselves healthy has become. And probably... I guess, like you said, productivity has to go up. So could it be more efficient via? Yeah, that's a huge, we could go down so many places, but I think the preventative and mindset and lifestyle is where it starts, not trying to fix when people have problems. Maybe, maybe. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there's lots. See, I've spent most of my career just trying to, assess and diagnose and and see what's happening see maybe where it's heading what kind of momentum it has but i i, I just i've i've never had the i'm not that kind of actuary to try to try to fix things or try to say well if we did this then that would happen i mean there are plenty of smart people trying to do that and a lot of those ideas are are there but you know if i could you know help solve the decumulation problem i I will feel, feel very good about that. And, yeah. Well, and I think uh, we often hear clients say, you know, they'll have a $3 million portfolio and we'll say, hey, you got to spend more. You're only spending X and, you know, we've stress tested it to this percent and lower. And, and they'll say, well, no, that's not how I got here. And then we'll say, okay, well, then why don't you start giving it to their kids? Why don't you start giving it to your kids? Oh, I don't want to fuck them up because they're, they're going to be entitled. It's like, well, your kids are like 50. <laughs> And they've already got their own businesses. So if you're not going to give it to them and you're not going to spend it, then this is going to be your tax bill. Right. So the punchline is saying to them, what if you could have actually taken one day off a week and not worked so hard and only had 2 million? Right. Right. And and you still would have had enough. And so then it's a real mind bend and and everyone gets to a certain place. Uh, But it is 
the example I use with younger people of saying, mm-hmm. you know, if you are successful, then and maybe, maybe you can, you know, stretch your brain to to, you know, so so in decumulation mode, do you have a formula in the book that you talk about on on that, or is it more of a mindset? Well, um, I actually don't talk about it in the book. I'm, this is this is the other, you know, because I'm I'm I I, I didn't just write a book. I'm, I'm still an actuary and I'm, I'm involved. I'm involved with the University of Illinois Academy for, uh, I think it's for the use of home equity and financial planning, because what, um, what people are now starting to realize is for, for most people, the, the value of their home and the value of the equity in their home is probably far greater than their 401k balance that it, I think there's probably $10 trillion worth of home equity, and there's only about $5 trillion worth of 401k balances out there. So what I've, I've been involved with, with, uh, with a, a, another fellow, um, he's not an actuary, he's actually a physics PhD, Barry Sachs, is we've been doing a fair amount of research, and we've actually published a couple of papers on how you can utilize a reverse mortgage and your 401 and a portfolio of stocks and bonds in a coordinated way to actually draw down. And basically you're drawing down from the portfolio after up years and you're drawing from the reverse mortgage when the portfolio is, when the market is down. And by coordinating the, the drawdown, you can actually take a higher uh, draw during retirement with a higher percentage pro- probability of not exhausting your assets. Mm-hmm. And so we published that a while back and you know it made a little bit of a splash. Not a lot of people have, have uh, it's been cited a few times, but not a lot of people have actually you know, used it. Um, but- Not um, used it yet. Of, <laughs> well, not yet, but, 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 the, but the question, and it kind of gets back to one of the things you asked before, but the challenge has been, yes, but then you're not leaving your home to your kids. You're spending all your assets. So the, the latest research that we've done is, is to look at the legacy. Because what, what our approach does is it, is it addresses sequence of return risks. And it, it, it gets you, it manages that. And if you manage sequence of return risk, you can you know, go a ways towards solving the decumulation problem. But the question is, okay, so you do this, what are you going to be leaving your kids when you die? And and the answer is about the same, but the mix will be different. There'll be more of your portfolio available and less of your home equity. Because one of the things about a reverse mortgage that's wonderful is you can never owe more than the house is worth. So no matter no matter what, when you die, the worst that'll happen is the house will be worth you you know the house will be worth the same as the the mortgage you pay off the mortgage and and then you've got a house or you you refinance it but having leaving a portfolio to your kids is is actually more flexible because if you've got two or three siblings that are trying to split up a house it's a whole lot easier to split up a portfolio so Anyway, so that's that's kind of what I'm involved in, but that's you know it's it's a little different from the from the work about you know that I didn't I didn't address it in the book. So if I'm doing, I literally just had this conversation yesterday with a lady with uh, you know we'll call it freezing math two hundred thousand in retirement assets, uh, sixty nine years old, uh, and then nine hundred dollar nine hundred thousand dollar house paid off, mm-hmm. and our discussion was around the fact that this house is an acre, it requires work and effort of which uh, her husband who recently passed away is not around to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was explaining to her, well, you got all that equity, you got all these goals that you got down. What if you sold the house and went and rented like at your age of 69 for 20 more years? Yeah. I know that you weren't supposed to, you were supposed to pay off your house and that was the, the dream of, of whatever. But you could that money you, you and you could be in the market with you could have no risk. You could just have it in a high interest savings account, and 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 it really she her wires were where she was coming around near the end. But in the reverse mortgage strategy, mm-hmm. uh, do you pay the interest? 
No, that's the beauty of it. So in your in your circumstance, the, the, your, your client, what she could do, because again, she can't, if she can't maintain the house, then she sells it and buys another smaller house where she can live for, you know, let's say, but what she can do by buying that house, she can buy that house with a reverse mortgage so that you can use a reverse mortgage to, to purchase. And so when she, or she can, she can pay cash. And if she pays cash for the, for the new house, then she can take out a reverse mortgage and set up a, a HECM or a reverse mortgage credit line and draw down that as she needs it. Or she could do it in a coordinated fashion with her 401k and do exactly what Barry and I are, are suggesting. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I think she's actually a, a pretty much of a textbook case for, for, for doing exactly what we we're saying. And, well, and by the way, I, I don't want to leave, leave out those other um, products, which is, you know, annuities and life insurance and so forth, because, you know, Barry and I, our, our newest research is incorporating uh, annuities into the, and life insurance into the, the strategy that involves a reverse mortgage as well as a portfolio. So, I mean, we're trying to get our arms around the decumulation problem, but it's it's a hard one. Um, for the audience, Pete, why do I care about sequence of returns? Oh, because it, uh, so give back us up to what you mean by that, just for anyone who doesn't sort of sure. the context. Okay, so if if I earn if I earn twenty percent in the first year, let's say I earn or let's say I earn 10% a year for, for five years and then um, 0% for five years, I'll have an average return of 5%. Well, if you, if you take that scenario and you start drawing down your balance from uh, during the years that you're earning 10% for five years, You'll be fine. You'll have way more at the end of those ten years, even with the zero percent returns in the last five years, than you will if you had zero percent return for five years and then ten percent return for the next five years. Because if you're starting to draw down a a declining or or a, or a, or a, a, an account that is not earning what what you expect, you're depleting it. And leaving less money there to for for when the returns come back. So so I mean, I, you know, it's it's hard to do it without a you know showing it up yeah, on a yeah. blackboard. But 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 you know, trust me that if you if you earn ten percent for five years and zero percent for five years, you're going to do much worse, much better than if you. As, as you draw down, then you will if you earn 0% for five years and then 10% in the, in the second. So consistency is more important, like not getting well, the 10, if you could only get. It's actually what's mo most important is to draw, is to draw from your portfolio in, in up markets and not, yeah. draw from your, not draw from your portfolio in down markets because you're compounding the problem and leaving less money to return right. to, for the markets to recover. And if you had a chart to draw on the screen, it really would equate to if you were 65 and you got the 0% for the first five years and then 10, your money's going to run out at say age 80. Right. Whereas if you got the 10, the money would last age 87 or something. Exactly. So it's, it's exactly. longevity. Um, I had a question I was going to ask you. Are you familiar with the Canada Pension Plan up in Canada or not? Not, so not the what? The which the Canada Pension Plan? Um, I had to study it way, way back. <laughs> well, I won't. Probably. I mean, I had to study Social Security, the Social Security system and the Canada Pension Plan. Well, All I remember from that is it varies by province, doesn't it? Or is it? Uh, uh, no, but it, it varies on your, on your income and how long you've contributed to it. But okay. let's just use a pension. Um so should a person take delay the pension to get a higher amount right and use their assets sooner or should they take the pension sooner and then 
That means that their assets are going to last longer. Mm-hmm. Is there a better strategy in that that's, regard? That's a great question. And, and that's, a, that's a question, actually. My, so there, there's another fellow, uh, Steve Vernon, who's the, uh, an actuary who is the, uh, he's a fellow at the Longevity Center in Stanford. And he's thought a lot about that. And he, he focuses on people that don't have houses and, are, and really the kind of the people who are really struggling to get by. And he's got a, he's got a white paper out there called Spend Safely in Retirement. And what he points out is that it is so the the way the actuarial factors are, it is so much more financially beneficial to delay Social Security as long as you possibly can. But you need to have money to live on. So he he advocates kind of a bridge, you know, using your 401k to bridge the time between retirement and when the actuarial increases are maximum, which I think is at about 70 right now. Um, So from a numbers perspective, an actuarial perspective, that makes sense. Now, again, it's, it depends on the person because let's say you, you, you've have a very, you know, let's say you, you know, that you're not going to live for very long. Let's say, you know, there's, you're, you're 65 and you're, you know, you know, you're, you, there's some health issues in your family and, and you're not likely to hit the actuarial tables. Well, then it might make sense to start taking your social security sooner because, and in fact, I have a, this is an, as a friend who's an actuary and, and I, it turns out his, his fears are, are, were ill-founded, but he took his, he took his social security at age 65 because he was afraid that the the system was going to go broke and that he'd be cut back by 25%. And he did the numbers and said, you know, if the, if the, if when the, if the system goes broke in 2020 or 20, not 2020, 2030, then over the, over my life expectancy, I'm going to get less by defer, by delaying. So it's really a, again, it's a little bit of an idiosyncratic um, calculation, but in general, the actuarial uh, increase factors make it a pretty pretty tilt tilt towards delaying retirement to delaying social security if you can delaying it so the the, the studies and the books that I've read on it are um, and you're bang on every person could have more random details that make it different but the premise that I remember was that you would have if you took your social if you took your pension late which would mean if you retired at 65 and you didn't take your pensions till 70, that means you need some money to get you in between. Right. That means you're going to have to use more of your money in the bank. So if you take your more of your money out of the market, you have a time advantage because you don't have time risk that there's probability that the market could have could could negatively happen out 20 years or 15 years. So if you use more of your money, but then you got a bigger pension, you need less retirement assets once the pension is kicking on. That's right. That's right. That's so, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I, I, got one, I, I got one final question on the life insurance side. If, if you were in that space, sure. like how, how does life insurance actually work when they're pricing it? Like when they're when you're pricing life insurance, because I, you know, I get people asking for quotes. I get people asking to uh, reduce my commission, or is there a deal that they could get because they're a buddy? And if I reduced my, you know, thousand dollars I make in commission, how much would that affect their premium? Which we can't in Canada. That's not how it works. Uh, but how how is life insurance priced? Just this is a selfish uh, bonus question. Well, I mean, it's it's priced by actuaries um, and. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of it's it's a very it's very very complicated. I mean, if you if you open the hood of a life insurance policy, you'll see it's a very complicated engine. I mean, there's 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 required reserves that has to be um, set aside. There's surplus that that different carriers, and there's even these days there's another factor that's actually becoming much more. Um, favorable for the for the consumer, which is that insurance companies are now looking at enterprise risk. I mean, 
and not to make it not to make not to put a judgment on it, but in a sense, insurance companies are now thinking of this as if they were a casino because they are they're they are insuring these um, life the the life insurance the again mortality risks, but they also sell annuities, which is essentially longevity insurance. So what they're trying to do is balance their annuity business with their life insurance business. So if mortality, because nobody knows, I mean, the pandemic was a, was a classic example. And I think hammered this home to, to a lot of insurance companies that, you know, there could be increased mortality that kind of cuts across and, you know, we could be ending up paying out much more in death claims than, we were expecting. And, you know, it's not like actuaries haven't thought about pandemics and war risk and all kinds of stuff in the, in the past. But I think they've become more attentive to it and thinking, okay, we, we should be balancing our annuity book of business with our life insurance book of business so that we as an insurance company can still be there to provide the great service that I believe insurance companies have for 200 years, which is to help employee, help uh, individuals um, guard against and insure against the risks. I mean, whether it's living too long, which is what an annuity does, or you know, dying prematurely, which is what life insurance is. So, like I said, I, I think there's there's um, I'm pretty optimistic about the pricing of, of both of those because once once an insurance company has those books balanced, then they can provide you know a very fair price. But when it when they just have life insurance, then they have to Set us. Then they have to collect extra money just in case. And so, so you're you're actually bullish on stability. I was thinking that as as we start inputting these new risks or these new things and actuaries are people, and the the predominant negative bias of humans as we are evolving towards that would be worse because they're going to want to collect more premiums. So I was thinking that. Premiums might actually be going up, you know, relative to the same forty-five age male or female that that would go up. But I never thought of the annuity piece. And for anyone who doesn't know, annuity is simply as you give the insurance company a hundred thousand, and they say to you, and don't quote me, <laughs> I have no idea if this is what it is. We'll give you uh, four thousand dollars for the rest of your life until you die. Um, right. right. So no risk, no market risk. It's just a guaranteed. Pension, basically. Well, it's 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 a risk for them, yeah, but it's a risk for them because, you know, people live to a hundred. I mean, there's there. Believe me, that in in the past, that's that's what insurance com- That's why insurance companies were a little reluctant to jump into the annuity business wholeheartedly because mortality just kept improving and improving and improving, and people looked at this and said, "Oh my God, people, are, you know, what happens if these these tech technology geniuses." In in Silicon Valley, suddenly cure old age, and now we're going to be paying people forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope to get that pill, Pete, uh, when that comes available. Uh, okay. So thank you uh, very much. Uh, where? Well, before I get to that, uh, I ask everybody this question: What is your ultimate picture of wealth? Well, um, that's a great question, and and so. You know, I'm 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 a low discounter, and and um, <laughs> so I mean I I I, I recommend in my book a you know a barbell strategy where you we have one um, set of you know safe guaranteed income and another where you've got a lot of irons in the fire and a lot of possible things and and I'm I'm my my safe barbell is is pretty heavy and and that's 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 to me is is not having to worry is to me wealth means just knowing that i'm going to have a steady income and it's enough it doesn't have to be a huge amount um, but enough that i don't have to worry about it so that's that's what it is to me well thanks Pete, and make sure that it's enough to buy the odd piece of old furniture yeah right <laughs> So thank you very much for being on the show. Where can people find uh, your book, your resources, uh, or if you're for hire? Where where do people find information? You no, know, I, I I I like I said, I, 
I, you can buy my book on Amazon. Um, the, it's Money Mountaineering, and you can go to moneymountaineering.com, and that'll that'll um, get you there. And I have I have a website, Peter Newerth, peternewerth.com. Um, and I, you know, just, just reach out. I have my email there, address there. And I, I love helping people. And if, if, uh, if you want help, I'm, I'm there to, there to help. Well, thanks a lot, Pete. We got lots, uh, I'm sure we could go on. So maybe we could look uh, ahead and schedule cause, uh, I've written down some notes. So I look forward to, uh, seeing you next time on the show. Well, thank you so much, Dustin. This has really been fun. And, and it's, it's, it's really fun to talk to somebody who's, um, like I said, a fellow traveler in the wilderness. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. If you found this episode valuable, share it with a friend. If you found this episode super valuable, leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us continue to bring you top quality content. For more information on anything discussed on this show, visit www.servicewealth.com. That's service spelled S-E-R-V-I-S-S. Any investment topics covered on the show are not investment recommendations, and you should seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. This show was produced by Podigy Podcasts. Thanks for listening.